we're in Lent, which is classically um, kind of a commemoration of Israel's 40 uh, years in the wilderness that they had, and then Jesus's 40 days in the wilderness where he fasted. It's generally a season where we go without. It's a kind of a, a raw season when we face our fears and doubts and concerns, and um, and we just kind of uh, embrace those for a season. The, maybe the um, the dark, hard side of the faith sometimes when um, when sometimes we don't understand things and we don't get what's going on and when um, God doesn't seem to be doing what we think he should. And we just kind of uh, sit in those uh, because we know at the end of the season is resurrection. At the end of the season is Easter. At the end of the season is life. And it's good to um, to kind of embrace this side of the faith so that when Easter comes, it's like the answer. It's the it's the resurrection after the death. And so, um, as I was going through the the kind of like the lectionary uh, this week, or actually it was a few weeks ago, but looking at the passages, I was drawn to the Old Testament. The lectionary always gives you an Old Testament passage, something from the Gospels, a Psalm, and something from the Epistles. And I was really drawn to the Old Testament passages this week because they pull out some of the classic promises of God, some of the what we call covenants, some of the big the big movements. Um, and uh, something in me kind of resonated with that because the wilderness is when the promises mean something. I don't know if you've ever thought of this, but you know, we don't think much of the promises of God when everything is going great. It's when things aren't going well that we grab a hold of those and just kind of hang on like a life preserver. You know, when, when you're in the wilderness is when you really need those promises. You know, when, you're, when your kid walks away from the faith is when you sit there and go, you said if I raise them the way they should go, when they're old, they won't depart from it. And you just kind of hang on to that thing like a life preserver. Like it's in the wilderness that the promises are life. When you get that bad report from the doctor and you're like, by your stripes, I am healed. You know, and you just, those things suddenly mean something more when you're in the wilderness than they do at other times. So, um, so I just decided we were going to do the Old Testament passages for this Lenten season. So we're going to do the kind of the Old Testament um, lectionary walk um, as we go through Lent together. So for the next six weeks, we'll be looking at some of these big promises. And as you heard um, from Zechariah, we're going to start with the Noahic Covenant. I think it's up there. Um, and we're all pretty familiar with this story. And what's interesting is when I say we all are familiar, that's a very universal word because the, the flood narrative... Um, is actually part of almost every culture on the planet. Um, I, I went through and counted, I got well over 40 before I gave up, of known ancient flood narratives um, from almost from every continent except for Antarctica and from uh, almost everything back to um, little tribal um, religions in Africa to the uh, most of the major religions. They all have a flood narrative. Um, and some of them actually name Noah. Um, some have a different name and the narratives do kind of branch off and go crazy. But it it makes sense that if um, if our story is true and if all human flesh on the planet today came from the family of Noah, that no matter where they branched and went, they would have taken that story with them. So it's it's kind of neat that no matter where we go, we do find um, some version of this narrative there, um, which is interesting. So um, so the the flood narrative, when I say we are familiar, I mean, the whole planet is pretty familiar with this story. Um, and the universality of this is kind of where we want to start tonight, um, because we kind of got to get in our head that this is not a Christian story. Um, 
I mean, it's part of the story of God, and which makes it part of the story of Christ. But this is a global story. This is a story about the whole world. This isn't just a story about us, which is really important. And it's what we're going to what we're uh, going to dig into. So let's look at it a little closer. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark. It is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is a sign of the covenant I make between you, uh, me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the clouds and it shall be a sign for the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. In ancient cultures, um, a covenant is this biblically binding agreement. It's basically a contract. Um, and there was pretty severe consequences if these were broken. Um, and the very first thing a covenant needed, which is actually the same as a contract, is the, um, the, the parties that are contracting together, that are covenanting together. Um, they have to be defined clearly. Um, and it is, you know, so that this contract is between blank, the party of the first part, and blank, the party of the second part. You know, that's the first thing we do in a contract is outline the parties um, present. And, uh, and I've kind of underlined those um, on the overhead as we read through that the, the parties are between God and every living thing on the earth. God and every person. Um, not God and every Christian, but God and every person on the earth. And this is kind of, uh, we're comfortable with this, that, that God is everybody's God in kind of a generic, you know, he's the God of the whole universe kind of way. But this means that our God um, is in a formal binding contract um, with every person on the planet that he has a contractual relationship um, with everyone, uh, not just us. Um, and of course, once we designate parties in a contract, we have to outline the content and the duration, which are uh, both in there. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off from the waters of a flood. Never again will the flood destroy the earth. Um, so there's our content. That's what the covenant is saying. Um, and then our duration is for you and for all generations. So this is a, they won't destroy with a flood ever, ever again. Um, and there's actually some debate um, amongst theologians as to whether this phrase uh, by a flood is like a, a loophole. It's what's interesting is all theologians after kind of um, the when the legal system started doing contractual loopholes, um, where there's like fine print, they all kind of tend to think that God is okay to destroy it by any other means, just not a flood. Like God snuck a loophole in there. Like I may destroy it again, but just not like this, you know, like he's like he's a lawyer or something. And, and most theologians before that just took the flood to mean this is the means, the only means Noah could have imagined 
that destruction could have happened because it was so near to him. So Noah would have taken it to mean I won't destroy the earth again. Like Noah wouldn't have said, you know, good, at least we can check flood off. You know, everything else is still open, but at least we can check flood off. Noah wouldn't have done that. He would have, this would have been the, like Noah wouldn't have even been able to imagine the destruction the flood could do. And then when it does, of course, that's the only means of destruction he can imagine. So a lot of theologians think that God is saying, I will protect the earth from here on out. Like I won't destroy the earth again like that. Um, and that's not important to us. I just thought it was kind of fun as I dug through what um, a lot of the old theologians said about this passage. Tonight we're more interested with who the covenant um, is between, between God and every living thing. Um, because that means our God is not a national God. He's not a tribal God. He's not um, a geographic God like, like they used to have where the God of the mountains and the God of the sea. He's not a geographic God. He's not even a Christian God, which sometimes that's hard to, to swallow, that our God is the kind of God that makes promises and covenants to people even outside of our faith, which stretches us sometimes. Our God owes protection and care for every living thing on the planet. This is hugely important in this first message as we go through Lent, because as we talk about these promises, the, the people in the covenant are going to shrink and get more um, kind of defined and the group's going to get kind of more specific. And God's activity and his, um, like his intimacy is going to grow as we kind of zoom down each week. But uh, it's, if you miss this, you may have a tendency in a few weeks to think that God's whole focus is us, that his whole focus is about what he does within this, this one covenant he has in this, you know, and, and, his, and his whole center is, is what happens in the, in, the, in the church. And it's important to establish right up front that God has a bigger picture, that God is also in covenant with other people and in covenant with every living thing. So this is going to be important as we go forth. We have to establish this well. Otherwise, we'll kind of get so focused on the trees, we lose track of the forest, which we don't want to do. Um, because God, and we talked about this a few weeks ago, this is kind of important. We talked about when God established his covenant with Abraham, which we're going to zoom in on a little bit next week. Um, he said, like from this very first covenant, he said, I'm going to um, give you descendants and through them I will bless the whole world. Like that his blessing wasn't just Abraham. He was kind of calling Abraham so that he could bless the world. We even tinkered with John 3.16 a little bit that week and said, you know, what if... That phrase, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believed in him would have everlasting life. What if he was saying, God so loved the whole world that he sent Jesus to create a church so that the church could bless the whole world? What if the picture wasn't so I can create a little, you know, a little group here, but so that I can create a little group, yes, and call them yes, and make them mine, yes, but so that they can go out and be a blessing to the whole world. So we're going to talk about that um, and really kind of hone in on that this week. God's big picture is and has always been the whole world, not just us. Which brings us to a huge question. What does it mean to be God's chosen? What does it mean to be chosen? Um, And this is uh, kind of big. If God loves the whole world, then what does it mean to be his chosen? Um, And this is... Tricky because kind of the classic 
Western understanding is that we are God's favorites, right? Like that's, that's ultimately what it means to be chosen. Like he picked us because um, we're his favorite. He loves us more and we're the apple of his eye. And we've even got language for this. We even like that phrase. If you were the only person on the entire earth, Jesus would have still come and died for you. Have you ever, anybody ever heard and said that? I've said that maybe a thousand times. Like, and it's, and that may be true. We don't know. But the point is, is it sells this idea It's all about you. It's all about you. If you were the only person, Jesus would have come just for you. And, and, uh, so we, and and we've kind of picked up this idea that it's, it's really about us. Um, and I'm kind of robbing from, um, Haim Potok here a little bit. If, if you've never read him, you read him, you should. Um, but I think being chosen is less like God, you know, being a dad who picks his favorite kid. It's probably closer to God, um, Picking one kid to do the chores so that all the other kids don't have to is probably closer to what the image of being chosen is about. It's it's choosing someone to do his work and to do his bidding. Um, I love uh, Tevia from Fiddler on the Roof. Any Fiddler on the Roof fans? When he's like, I know, I know, we're your chosen people, but every once in a while, couldn't you choose someone else? Like, uh, I think Tevia was probably closer. Um, to the real uh, understanding of what it means to be chosen. God chose us because he loves the world. He chose us because he wants to show the world his glory. He wants to show the world his love. He wants to show the world his goodness. He wants to show the world um, his heart. And he had to pick somebody to show that and to shine that. And so he picked us. He chose a church and then said, now go out and be a light on a hill. Don't cover it up. Like I've chosen you to be the blessing that I want to be. So is this a privilege? Yes. Um, We're excited to do that. Like we're excited to be chosen, um, but it's probably more responsibility um, than privilege. We serve a God who's in covenant with the entire world and he chose us to be kind of the, the light to that covenant. And as always, I think Jesus kind of narrows it down best. Um, In Matthew 5, 43 to 48, he says this, you've heard it said, you've heard that it was said, you should love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you so that you would maybe sons of your father who's in heaven. For he makes the sun to rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect for your heavenly father is perfect. We're actually going to park on this passage here for pretty much the rest of our time because I think it is really, really rich. But um, let's break this down just a little. I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes the sun to rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. So the command is simple. Love your enemies. That's the command. And that's pretty black and white. Pray for those who pick on you. That's pretty black and white. Why? So you can be like God. And how does... Loving those who pick on you make you like God. And his answer is basically because God doesn't play favorites. God loves everyone. 
God doesn't just love the people who are good to him and nice to him and generous to him. God loves everyone, even the people who pick on him. He doesn't play favorites. We, you see almost a throwback to, to Noah there. He sends rain on both sides. He sends um, the sun on both sides. He's taking care of everybody. He's in covenant to take care of everybody. Uh, incidentally, this is, um, I think this is why Jesus doesn't usually speak in terms of in and out. He speaks in terms of near and far. Like he talks to people and he's like, ah, oh, you're very near the kingdom of God. Like he, he, he's just as concerned about that person who's far away and seeing them come nearer. And, and, and he doesn't treat it in terms of, ah, now you're past the finish line and you can relax and take it easy. It's, he's always drawing us nearer. And sometimes we get far and he's like, no, turn back and come nearer. He's always drawing us back to him. So he is constantly loving the whole world indiscriminately. Sun on both sides, rain on both sides, which takes us back to Genesis. And he wants to do this. He wants us to do the same for everyone, even the people who aren't good to us, maybe even especially to the people who aren't good to us. And we typically kind of hide behind that classic. Um, I do love people. I love them enough to tell them, you know, they're they're they need to change their ways or they're going to go to hell. Like we and we we kind of hide that, you know, behind this. You know, that's that's the most loving thing I can do is to tell them they're 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 going to go to hell if they don't knock it off. That's my love. Only Jesus didn't do that. Jesus showed us like a picture of what love looks like. He didn't stand safely inside the the kind of camp of the chosen and say and then like scream his love outside the camp. He drew near. He went to them and ultimately took the cross for them. Like love is is sacrificial. Like the kind of love the Bible's talking about is like here let me take your place. Let me take your punishment. Let me take your abuse. It's this kind of absorbing love that says I'm I'm willing to stand up for you even though you're mean to me and even though you're picking on me and even though you're uh, in Jesus's case beating me and driving nails through my hands so I don't think we can kind of hide behind this you know my love looks a whole lot like hate but it's really love like because Jesus's love was was very um, almost self-abusive in his ability to pour himself out for us. Jesus showed love with a cross. Um, and then he told us, that's what it means to be chosen. Go be salt. Like, go, go out into the, like, salt's a preservative, right? And, and we know that, but we, like, to, for it, in order for salt to preserve meat, it's gotta be, like, all rubbed into it and fully, like, drawn in with the meat. It's, got to become almost part of it you know and we kind of do this you know in and out thing like i'm in here you're out there but i want to preserve you from comfortably in here without being out there with you that's not how salt works tells us to be a light tells us to love our enemies turn the other cheek go the extra mile give them your coat also like somehow we miss that these are the commands of jesus like and we we forget that this kind of um, this cross life, I don't know how else to say it, is the way he asked us to live. So how do we respond to this? We're going to spend a little bit of time here. Um, 
And first, I'm just going to throw this out there because I, I always get this from the Noah story. I get it from the creation story. Um, and I hope it doesn't sound like a shameless political plug because I don't want it to be that. And it's not that at all. But I believe Christians are supposed to lead the way on creation care. I think um, God has given us a beautiful planet and we're supposed to take care of it. And, and I think uh, it's like God is in covenant with this planet and has given us this gorgeous planet. I think Christians should be leading the way um, to protect our, our planet and our environment. I always have felt this way. And, and unfortunately, because we haven't taken up that mantle, um, those who are now doing it are doing it out of fear and like anxiety. And there's this, oh, God, if we don't do this, we're not going to have a um, like a planet for our kids and our kids' kids. And that's never why we're supposed to do anything. We're not supposed to be motivated by fear. We're, it's supposed to be an act of worship. Like God has given us something beautiful to take care of and taking care of it should be an act of worship. Like we should be, I think Christians should be environmentalists, um, not, not the political environmentalists, but taking care of the planet and beautifying it should be something that we do as an act of worship to our God because he is a creative um, God and created this beautiful place for us to live. And it should be our privilege to help take care of it. So that's first thing. Think on that. Um, and uh, second, and this is the big one, um, is I think we're supposed to love. <laughs> that sounds super basic, uh, but I think it's absolutely key. And I think it's also what is supposed to make us different. Like we have this tendency to um, kind of make like an arbitrary list of do's and don'ts. And, and then we say, like, we have to do these things so that we can be different from the world, um, so we can be different from others. And uh, so I just on like an experiment. I went and looked and picked just a couple things. Like, let's say drinking. So I just pulled up drinking. Um, if you don't drink, you could be a Christian. That could mean you're a Christian. It could also mean you're a Muslim. It could also mean you're a Buddhist. It could also mean you're Sikh. It could also mean, um, what else is on my list? Uh it could also mean you're Hindu, unless you use it as medicine. Hindus can use it for medicine, but nothing else. So drinking doesn't really identify us as Christian, does it? It could be any, any faith that does it. What about cussing and swearing? Um, same, Buddhist, Muslim, Sikh, Hindus. Now you can throw in the Jews if, it's, if you consider taking the Lord's name in vain. So you can add one more to the camp. Um, adultery, every single one of them outlaws adultery. Like, but love your enemies. Try that one. If you want to, if you want to really stand out, if you want to really be different, if you want to really look different than the rest of the world and have your activity mark you as what you are, love your enemies. Jesus said, this is how they'll know you're my disciples, by your love for one another. This is what will make you stand out. This is what will make you different is if you love and especially those that no one else has loved. That's what Jesus says in the, in the passage. He's like, you know, how does this make you different from everybody else? If you just love the people that are easy to love, you love the people that are on your you know, side of the political aisle, you love the people that are your color, you love the people that are your friends, you love the people that are your... Like, if, if that's all you do, how are you any different? You're just like all the other religions. You're just like the non-believers. You're just like the Gentiles over there. You're just like everybody else. If, but if you really want to stand out, if you really want to be like God, if you really want to, you know identify yourself and mark yourself as different. The only way is love. It's love. The list is easy. What we, what we ultimately do is we pick an arbitrary list that kind of fits what we like to do anyway, right? We, you know, if, if we're brought up and, you know, and cuss words weren't allowed in our house, well, then we 
We say, well, this is obviously not Christian. You don't do that. And, and, and lists are kind of easy. Love is never easy. Love is hard. Love is very hard because somebody will come up and, and the first thing that will happen to you is you're, you'll be like, yeah, but they, did you see the way they were acting, the way they talk about God and the things they do and blah, you know, and love is never easy. It's always difficult. So I think we have a tendency to act like kind of an elite class of, of like moral, um, almost like the cool kids that get to stand around and choose who's going to be in and who's going to be out, you know, who's, who's the in crowd and who's the out crowd, you know. And I don't think um, we were ever supposed to be that way. Like we follow, we emulate, um, we want to be like a foot washer, ultimately. We want to be like, I mean, a foot washer who then said, now, since I've done this, you go do this. You go pick the low job and serve those around you. You go wash feet. We follow and serve a cross carrier who said, now you go take up your cross. You go do the hard job. You go love sacrificially. We follow a, a living sacrifice. A guy who, who took the abuse of those who hated him and just kind of absorbed it into himself. And then he said, now if you want Real life, you lose your life. Those who lose their life find it. Those who give themselves up and love when it's not easy, those are the ones who find their life. We have a tendency to think it's about us, that it's all, um, that Jesus did this for us. And he did. I mean, he, I'm, I'm not taking away from his love for us. I'm not taking away because his love for us was obviously um, immense. He, he took our punishment, took our abuse, and, and gave himself on our behalf um, and has been kind and generous. And, and it's easy to turn that into um, that we're the center of attention. And, and this kind of stuff has nothing to do with like earning your salvation, by all means, if you're just like, no, I don't want to love, then go love. Don't love. That's fine. Like, that doesn't change anything. You can't add to or take away from um, your salvation by how you act. This isn't about that. But if you want to be a Jesus follower and be like Jesus, it's, uh, it's a hard road. It's a hard road because it means loving people you don't want to love. Especially right now when our country is just tearing itself apart with ideologies and it's hard to love across those sometimes it's hard to love across those gulfs and barriers but that's the Jesus way everybody like feeling good after your first Lenten message like this is Lent Lent is about getting knocked down to size again remembering that um, that we are on a path of carrying a cross and that is supposed to be hard. That's supposed to be difficult. Because we serve um, a Savior who ultimately gave himself for us. He went this road. He went this path. And we follow him. That's what it means to follow Jesus. That's what it means to follow somebody. is to walk the path that they're walking. And we know that this was the path he walked. So what else could we walk? So as we go to the table tonight, um, I just... Uh, ask that maybe as you take the bread and the cup, um, you might think of that road 
that, that led to that. When Jesus said, um, this is my body broken. This is my butt, blood spilled. You know, and then now follow me. That's a tough road. 